0: You know, history boasts of great conquerors. In fact, when we think of of some great conquerors, probably some of us think of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, by the age of 22, had conquered Greece. He was moving across uh, to Asia Minor. He cut in half the famous Gordian knot. And he actually fulfilled this legacy, this prophecy that was there that whoever unraveled the Gordian knot would be the conqueror of the world. And he would go on and he would go into, he would defeat the, the mighty army of Darius III. He gained control of the eastern Mediterranean coast. And by the time he finished, at the age of 33, his kingdoms expanded from Greece all the way to Northern China, I mean, Northern India. It was almost 2.2 million square miles that he conquered. Then you got a guy by the name of Genghis Khan. He united the Mongolian tribes, and he conquered territories as far apart as Afghanistan all the way through Northern China. He left a mountain of skulls in China that were there for years from the people that he had conquered. And by the time that he finished conquering, he conquered twice as much as uh, twice as much as uh, as did Alexander the Great. He conquered over 4.8 million square miles. And we could go on and on. We could talk about all kinds of conquerors. We could talk about Napoleon Bonaparte and Cyrus the Great and Attila the Hun. All of them did the same thing. They're trying to conquer the world. and, And they are devastating people and countries and their ways of life in order to get them to conform to their way of life. It was the Islamic conqueror, Tamerlane. He drove across Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's estimated... That he was responsible for 17 million deaths which was about five percent of the population of the world at that particular time we know uh, probably or some of you know maybe like miss ola here remember the great conqueror hitler right uh probably the most notorious possibly of all of these he set off world war ii by the time it was finished there were 55 million people around the world who lost their lives in this war. He invaded 11 countries. He terrorized and killed people along the way. He tried to eradicate certain people from society, whether it be political leaders or gypsies, certainly Jews, and and even religious leaders. But the greatest conqueror of all time, he never led an army on a battlefield. He never even carried a sword. And yet he said, I have overcome the world. The word overcome, it means to defeat, to win a victory, to conquer, to prevail in a contest or in a military conflict. In fact, some translations will even translate this for Jesus saying, I have conquered the world. But if you know what's going on here in John chapter 16, he doesn't seem like much of a world conqueror. He is just within hours of being crucified. His own people, the leaders of his own people, they are leading the campaign for Jesus to be put to death. His disciples are scared because throughout the the Last Supper, he keeps talking about death. And we look at this and say, what kind of conqueror was this man Jesus And yet we know within a few hours, he's going to be standing before Pilate and he's going to tell Pilate this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet even though his kingdom does not have its origin in the world, it is nonetheless active in our world. It draws its power from a source that is external from the kind of powers that we see on on the world stage. It defeats humanity's greatest of enemies. And the way that it conquers is not by taking people and running over them and, and destroying homes and destroying lives and people's livelihood, but rather transforming people. Transforming them to be citizens of heaven here on earth the jews were hoping for an alexander the great to come along and to deliver them from oppression they wanted someone like king david who would bring them back to national prominence that they they once had but that is not the kind of conqueror jesus was his kingdom would not be seen as something of tyranny and oppression but by becoming the crucified king. Jesus' crown was made of thorns. A bloody purple robe was placed around him. And he was enthroned on a cross, which seems to be a defeat, but for Jesus, this was his victory. Let's go back into the text. And we're going to begin in verse 16, and he begins by saying, a little while. Now, you're going to see this quite often in these next few verses. A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? In other words, this is throwing them off. He said, we do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask. And he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Seven times. That phrase, a little while. Is mentioned in our text and they are confused and understandably so Jesus is saying look in a little while you're not gonna see me but then in a little while you are gonna see me sounds like a riddle doesn't it but then Jesus moves on and he goes into kind of a parable look at verse 20 he says truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Jesus says that this sorrow, he, doesn't, he actually doesn't say that this sorrow will be replaced by joy. He says it will be turned into joy. At first, the cross causes this deep anguish and pain for his disciples. And he compares it to a woman who is experiencing, for the first time, the the labor pains. But he says that once it's finished, it will be turned into joy once that bundle of joy comes forth. So while it seems like something of pain and anguish, it, it turns into something that is joyful. He says, that's the cross. That's what I'm trying to talk about, and yet they still didn't quite understand, and we probably wouldn't have either. The background of these words actually come from Isaiah chapter 26. In Isaiah 26, it talks about these two cities. And it it makes this correlation between a little while and about this pregnant woman. He says that there is this lofty city, They have exalted themselves above God, they are corrupt, they are unjust, they are an archetype of rebellious humanity, they are destined to be ruined, and they will be replaced by a strong city, which is the New Jerusalem, where God will reign as king over his redeemed people. Isaiah combines a little while with this woman who is pregnant and she has these labor pains and in this message in this song really that isaiah gives we find this message of judgment they're going to go into assyrian and babylonian captivity but it's also mixed with a message of hope because one day they will be delivered in the future and it's between these these This time of judgment and hope between the labor pains and and this bundle of joy that they are to have patience and trust and waiting. They are waiting for the time that God's people would return. And then they would have much to celebrate. But until this day comes... He says, you are to go into your houses and you are to hide until God's wrath, his exile, has been complete. They wait; The wait seemed long to these people, as you can imagine, if you know anything about captivity, Babylonian captivity itself. We're looking at 70 years. But what seemed like a long time to them, God says, is a little while. It's a little while. And during this little while, then you are to shut the doors of your house. In other words, this is seen as as a place of safety during a time of chaos. Kind of like Noah and his family when they went on the ark and God closes the door. Or Israel, on the night of judgment that's going to pass through the land, then they are to stay shut up in their homes until the chaos and death And judgment is over. All the Lord required is that they trust him. And that they patiently wait. In a little while, God's wrath is going to be poured out on Jesus. The New Testament uses this very big word, propitiation. It's a fun word to say. Sometimes we struggle with defining it. But it simply means to satisfy. Because God is holy, his justice burns against sin. If God's holiness is going to be satisfied or can be satisfied, he will punish us, which means that we will die and we will be lost. But if he decides not to punish us for our sins, then his justice will never be satisfied. And so God gave a solution. And that is he would come into our world and become our substitute. He would take our sins, he would take the wrath that belongs to us and put it upon his son in agony and in blood. And the Bible says, this is love. This is what true love looks like. In a little while, God's judgment would be poured out on Jesus on the cross. In a little while, they will no longer see Jesus anymore. But in a little while, their sorrow will be turned to joy. Jesus will not be defeated in the grave But he says, in a little while, they will see him again when he emerges from the tomb in resurrection. Jesus conquered the power of sin by his obedient life. You see, that's why his holiness could be satisfied. It couldn't be satisfied me dying for you or you dying for me because we've got our own sins. But Jesus, he could take on the full wrath of God on the cross where also he defeats the power of Satan, but he doesn't stay in the grave. And so he conquers the power of death and resurrection so that we too can rise up and we walk in a new life on this earth and we also will no longer, we no longer will be under God's wrath. But that doesn't mean that we won't have trouble, does it? In fact, where he says, I have conquered the world, he seems to give kind of a conflicting uh, message here. He says, you're going to have peace, and you're going to have tribulation. And it seems like, well, that doesn't seem possible, right? And so we have to say, well, I better define what peace, what he means by this. Because for us, or the world, peace means lack of war, lack of enemies, lack of difficulties and problems. But the peace of God is different. The type of peace Jesus gives is a freedom from anxiety while struggling with the difficulties, while going through the midst of the chaos. Let me say this, and this is so important. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you're not going to have trouble. There are so many in the world, they get discouraged with God because because they have trouble, they have problems, there's chaos. They look around and they see injustices. The world is hostile to the things of God. And we can expect to have struggles and conflicts. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that we are in a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. There's things that's happening in the unseen. And Christianity is always going to clash with culture. Because we think differently about sexuality and gender and right to life. We think differently in, in how we we see humanity and how we deal with humanity. If God's people are in this world, they will be pressed. They will be crushed in spirit at times, like that of a mother in labor. When Jesus speaks of peace, though, it is an inner confidence. It is the inner confidence of a warrior who is weary and thirsty and outnumbered. but who fights bravely on because they are confident of the outcome, because they know they've already won. Jesus says, take heart. He says, be courageous. The victory of Jesus over the world, it's going to outweigh all the threats that this world throws at us. He didn't say, take courage, you will overcome the world, does he? He doesn't say, I have overcome the world, so you can too. That, that, even that's not very comforting, is it? I know we got some golfers out here. Got one going on scholarship this fall. But, but so you, you may not be as good as Adam. Or maybe you go out and you go out with the, with the pro the golf pro, and they get up every time and they hit it from the tee shot onto the green, and they look at you and say, I did it, you can too. And probably even Adam, as good as he is, would say, no, I can't do that every time. And so when we look at this, we have to see, Jesus says, I have overcome the world Have courage. I have faced the enemy and I have vanquished him. I have done it before and I will do it again. That's your victory. Trust me. Have patience. Wait on me. We are interim citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are looking back at resurrection. We know that great victory that was there through Jesus' death and resurrection, right? But we're also looking forward to the second coming. And it will be here in a little while. And like those who were waiting to come back from captivity, a little while for God, it may seem like a long while for us, but he says, be patient. Trust me. Read the stories of Israel and you will see that I always delivered. The time will come. Take courage. He has already overcome sin and death. And that is true peace. That's the kind of peace that Isaiah spoke about back in chapter 26. And he says, in the path of your judgment, O oh Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desires of your soul. But actually, this is the verse I want you to see from verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace. Who? Those whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. When Jesus says, I have come to give you peace, peace comes to us in the midst of our conflict, in the midst of the world going off in chaos that we see right now in our world. And we wait on him. Our minds are stayed on him. We trust him. To understand the peace of God, we must understand that human beings are natural enemies of God. Every single one of us have been. We are born with this nature that seeks to please itself that wants to be our own god we want to dictate what is good and evil and because of that we put ourselves at odds with the odds with the perfect creator and no matter how hard we try we can't create peace because our best efforts on our best day are nothing but filthy rags polluted garments before the holiness of god But thank God he took the initiative by sending us the Prince of Peace. Peace means our conscience are cleared. It means the shame that we once felt in sin has been carried by Jesus. We are no longer afraid of death. We are no longer afraid of eternity. Our last breath on earth will be our first breath in heaven. Jesus has sent his spirit during this time of waiting. If you were to go back and you were to look and during this whole monologue of what's going on in the text that we're talking about, and Jesus says, I'm sending him. I'm sending you my helper. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit because it's his peace that I leave with you. He doesn't conquer the world in the sense of the way of of making everyone do what's right. But he gives us a peace within, within the conflict, within the chaos of our lives. Let's just sing a couple of verses of this song. Peace, perfect peace In this dark world of sin The blood of Jesus Jesus whispers peace within. It is enough, her struggle soon shall cease, and Jesus call us to Father, we come to you this day and we just thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus, who came and he died for us. We thank you, Father, that he has conquered the world, even though the world still rages in its chaos. It rages in its own ways and its own, the, its, its own um, determination of what is good and right. But, Father... We thank you for your son. And we thank you, Father, you saved us when we were sinners. And Father, we just pray for those who still are apart from you. We pray that their hearts can be softened. That they can see truly, truly what you've done for us. I pray for the people in this church. I pray as we go out into the chaos of our world and everything that's unfolded here of late and there's going to be awful and nasty things father that said about us but no worse and certainly not as bad as your own disciples at times throughout world history but father even if it were to come to that father may we understand a little while may we understand the joy that's coming Help us, Father, to be courageous. Help us to trust you and to wait patiently for you because we wait for your coming when finally this world will be completely turned over to your son. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.